Welcome to the Value Investor Chatter Podcast. My name is Becco, and I have a, a very, very special guest today with me, Alex Morris from the Science of Hitting Investment Research. Welcome to the podcast, Alex. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm excited for this. Awesome. Well, thanks for, thanks for doing this. Before we get started, just a quick disclaimer, this is purely for educational purposes only. Uh, please consult with your tax and uh, financial advisor if you're going to make any decision on, on your finances. Okay. With that out of the way, let's, let's get going. So Alex, again, thanks for, uh, thanks for hopping on. Um, I thought, you know, I, I reached out to you on Twitter. Like I, you know, it's, it's where a lot of the hive mind of, of investors on Twitter, I reached out to you there, you know, your, 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 uh, your Substack, obviously a big hit. So why don't we start with, uh, introductions? Tell me a little bit about yourself. Sure. Uh, well, that could be a very short answer or a very long answer, depending on what you'd like. Uh, the, maybe the, maybe the shortest way to say this is, uh, I kind of became obsessed with investing in, uh, call it the mid, mid to late two thousands. When I was in college, I went to school for building construction. My dad's a plumber and I kind of just followed in his footsteps and, uh, I kind of quickly realized it wasn't really the, the path I was interested in. And I stumbled on the, the Berkshire shareholder letters around that time. And I had, um, you know, I, I had a, I had a business that I started with a couple of buddies in college. So I had kind of a entrepreneurial slash financial business interest, but I didn't know how to, uh, kind of apply it up until that point. And then I, then I found investing and yeah, that was, uh, probably 15 years ago now. And, uh, the, the fires, the fire is burning as strongly today as it was then, if not more so, um, hopefully I've become a little bit smarter over time. Um, so yeah, around that time, a few years later, as I was finishing up at school, I went to the university of Florida. I was, I was trying to find a job in the investment industry and I didn't totally know how I was going to go about doing that. Um, and early, early efforts to find a, a gig at a mutual fund or a hedge fund, things like that, um, didn't seem to bear much fruit. They wanted someone with a bit more experience, CFA, MBA, all that kind of stuff. And, you know, I had to get from A to B. Um, so I started writing online around that time and started you know, trying to build a name for myself, improve communication skills, um, you know, those types of things. And, and once I found a job in the industry, uh, originally at a small firm in Jacksonville, Florida, uh, eventually moved to a larger firm in Savannah, Georgia. I'm working as a, basically a buy side equities analyst. And I'm also, also continuing to write under a pseudonym science of hitting or TSOH. Um, you know, I, I, I think maybe one thing that I think could be helpful that I, uh, kind of learned through that period, especially for younger people who are getting in the industry. I, I kind of always made it a point to, to put my interest in terms of the areas I want to be focusing on ahead of, um, you know, potentially career advancement or, or compensation, not to say those things were, that those things were certainly relevant, but I always made it incredibly clear to employers kind of where my, my interest and where I wanted to focus, uh, kind of lied. And I think that's an important part of, of being, you know, it's really hard when you're first coming out of school, obviously, but as you get into your mid twenties or, or getting into your thirties, if you put a lot of time and effort in, I think you need to start putting your foot down a little more to ensure that you're you know, focusing on the areas that you, that you care about to the extent that you have that passion. So I, I continued to stay on the 
kind of equity analyst side of the business. And, you know, again, my writing and, and the things I do on Twitter and the like were kind of perfectly aligned with that. Um, that kind of brought me to the start of 2021 when I, when I launched the TSOH investment research service. And I've been doing that for the past two years. And what it is for anybody who doesn't know is I effectively took all the work that I was doing over that, you know, 10 plus years prior to launching as an equities analyst. And that's kind of the output of the service. It's just complete transparency around my own research process, my own investment process. I disclose everything I do before I do it. And, you know, it's all encompassed in this kind of long-term uh, investment approach and that kind of lends itself to a focus on kind of high quality companies with attractive long-term prospects and, and management teams that are uh, capable and honest and transparent with, transparent with shareholders and, and all those types of things. So it's kind of all snowballed into, into what it is today. That's perfect. So for those of you who don't know, uh, I'll leave the links in the show notes. Alex has this great um, subsect, so definitely go check that out. Um, okay. So. Let's, let's actually do a double click on the, on your investment, investments philosophy, as you put it in, in your, in your sub stack. So tell us a little bit about how you orient yourself. Obviously you mentioned some, some of the criteria you talked about there, long-term orientation, you want to look at honest and capable management, et cetera, et cetera. So tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, I think maybe a, a, a good way to frame it is, you know, I look at I look at someone like Warren Buffett and think about, you know, I, I wrote about Coca-Cola recently, the idea of him buying a stake throughout the, the period of the late eighties and, and er, very early 1990s and establishing a position size. And you now fast forward 30 years and he hasn't bought or sold a single share since 1994. And, you know, at the start of that period, it accounted for more than 30% of Berkshire's equity portfolio. So obviously a very significant position. And again, kind of forget about the outcome of any, on any single investment and just think about the thought process or kind of the decision-making that could even possibly lead to an outcome like that. And it just strikes me as, as kind of very different from the kind of generally accepted wisdom about how to operate in public markets with, with stocks. And he, by the way, he did something very similar with, with Geico, a position that was bought throughout the late 1970s, primarily, um, really didn't touch it much at all until 95 when they bought the half of the company that they didn't already own and made it a, you know, a subsidiary of Berkshire Hathaway. So it's, it's, it's just that it's a true business owner mindset that feels like a slight tweak from what most people are trying to do in public markets. But I think that slight tweak has a major impact on research process, decision-making, et cetera. When you actually actually implement something like that, it, it changes the areas of, of focus that are most important to you. Um, things like the valuation are still a very relevant consideration, but they, they move to a different point in kind of the decision-making process and and other factors like management quality or, or business quality or growth prospects, et cetera, they, they become much more prominent as part of the analysis. And I'd, I'd also argue, you know, more, they have more permanence than, than some of those other considerations. So it just, it, it, for me, that long-term focus and 
kind of a willingness to to narrow your focus to a smaller collection of businesses that are even potential investment candidates. I just I think it allows this to be a game where the knowledge can compound in a way that's again just a little bit different than if you operate from the perspective of everything is a viable investment opportunity. It's just all you know expected IRRs, and you're running around potentially looking at thousands of different things versus. I'm kind of narrowing my focus more and more over time to the things that I really think might pass uh, my key hurdles. Yeah, that's great. It's it's sort of akin to um, you know so, some of the some of the some of the some of the things that you mentioned in the in the article, like long term, uh, just really looking at the businesses as. There's this one guy that put it, I don't, I don't remember who, who it was, but I read somewhere or listened to it somewhere that you're buying, think about investing as looking for your co-founder. I thought that was a really good way to say, to say it because it really is like you're going on this journey and you're looking for somebody that you can really entrust your, you know, life savings or your, your time, your attention too. And it's as important as, you know, finding a co-founder, if you're to start a business, like you want that partner to be trustworthy, competent, you know, honest, all these things. I think, um, that, that makes sense there. It, it's sort of, you know, we have, we have, uh, on the podcast value investor checklist. So we go through some of those things, the business is good, the management financial, the valuation is at the very end. Um, so I think, yeah, I think an important part of all this too, I just should add, cause I don't want to I don't want to paint too rosy of a picture. <laughs> I think sure. everything in I think everything in this game or in life generally is about, you know, trade-offs and nothing's black or white. And it's kind of picking picking the risk or things that you're willing to be exposed to that are most acceptable to you. And, you know, as part of this long term and especially concentrated approach is, you know, you have to you have to make assessments about things over extended periods of time and as we all know, that's generally very difficult to do. So, you know, it, it's, it's certainly not, it, it's not something where I, I, I'd argue it's the best way to do it objectively, you know, something like that. I just think it, I think it fits well with my personality. And I think when it's done well, I think there's some pretty clear examples from, from some very prominent investors that it can lead to, you know, attractive outcomes over long periods of time. Yeah. I like, I like the, the second point there. It, it has to fit with your personality, the, your disposition. I think that's a very important. Awesome. Um, let's see, let's, uh, let's move over to kind of the fun part and actually dive into some of the, some of the names that you write about. I know you wrote, I think a few pieces about Roblox and a few pieces about Disney. So your pick, which one should we go first? Well, maybe Disney's a good one because it speaks to the the point I just made about about the you know the risk and the difficulty of of finding in some ways. I mean, it's, it, there's also things about Disney that are still very, very, very attractive. But you know, it speaks to the risk of or the importance of management and importance of you know operating the assets in a way that's you know optimal for the long term value of the enterprise. And in the case of Disney, they've clearly had significant management challenges over the past few years um you know starting starting with Iger's inability to to find a a suitable replacement for, for an extended period of time uh the replacement that he did find 
with the benefit of hindsight, it's pretty clear that a lot of the changes implemented did not work well with the, you know, the culture that exists there, the, the focal points that need to be emphasized within that business for it to be successful long-term. Um, you know, now with Iger's return, it's, it's a, it's a bit up in the air in terms of some of the strategic decision-making. Um, you know, there's, there's, there's an endless question about the fatigue of their kind of core IP and if they, they pressed the gas too much. Um, so there's a lot of relevant considerations that, um, and they have merit that would certainly, uh, lead you to potentially question whether or not the long-term value of the, of the franchise and the business is, is sustainable. So we can, we can dive in more, but I think it's a good example of, you know, it speaks to the difficulty of truly finding things that are going to be, uh, differentiated for many, many years or even decades. And in the case of Disney in particular, it's kind of funny getting back to Buffett, you know, they, they owned a decent chunk of Disney in the late 1990s. And I think, I think Disney went through something, you know, not to say that today they're, they're having a, an IP problem on par with what they had then, but they, they did have an IP problem during that period. And I think his view on the differentiation and sustainability of what they do was somewhat brought into question. And I think that probably impacted his decision to part ways with the business. So it's interesting. One of the things that we talked about, my, my co-host Hari, and when we talk about Disney before this whole, you know, post COVID kind of rough patches that Disney is, is undergoing right now, we, we talked about Disney as one of the, one of the shining examples of how it's, it's almost, it's almost impenetrable moat in that the content that generate, that they generate in the, in the content business versus some other newcomers like you know, Amazon studio or some other, you know, Netflix or something like that is that you have a content that has a lifetime value of multi that spans multi-generation. And so you, you put out a content, it gets watched over and over and over again, and that it's right up there. Like the brand of Disney and the content the value of the content is so high that it, we, we thought that it was really impenetrable before COVID. And then now some of the, I, I want to drill down into some of the, some of the perhaps mishaps. Um, so the streaming Disney plus, I want to talk about that. And then the Fox asset acquisitions. I want to talk about that too. So let, let's go down, let's go down the streaming side of the business. What, what is, I guess, what, what is your broad take on the streaming generally? And then let's hone in on Disney plus and their strategy. So, well, let, let me frame it in terms of Disney real quick, just to give a, I think ever, I, I think generally people have an idea of what's happening in streaming, particularly for entertainment programming. I mean, in, if you look at somewhere like the U S linear TV is facing significant and sustained pressure, you know, the viewership and ratings are. The trend is even worse than the pay TV kind of subscriber declines. When you look at demographics, it's, it's much, much worse for younger people. And I think we all kind of intuitively understand why, right? The, the, the level of choice offered through various streaming services, you know, the quality of the content, the, the lack of a need to be somewhere on X date at X time, you just watch whatever you want, whatever you want, you know. Um, the ability to binge stuff, it's just very obvious that the value proposition for streaming for entertainment programming in my mind is clearly a vastly superior 
offering than, than what was available to linear. So and that trend has been underway for a while. Legacy media companies were, uh, you could say slow to react to that or the mechanism through which they tried to react to it. Most notably Hulu was a debacle given the organizational structure, the ownership structure is the classic example of legacy, legacy companies with a lot of advantages being unable to kind of evolve and adapt. Um, so everybody was really playing second fiddle to Netflix, um, or you can include YouTube there as well, to the extent that you view it as kind of a similar, um, a similar offering in terms of just, you know, on-demand programming. Um, so that, that kind of brought us to, you know, call it the late 2010s, uh, Disney, Disney clearly positions itself to play a much bigger role in, in D to C, you know, they started with ESPN plus, but that's a bit of a different game given the, the differences between live programming and, and sports versus entertainment programming. They're kind of two different pieces of the pie, in my opinion, and should be thought about differently. Um, but they, they go live with Disney plus and set, you know, these D to C subscriber targets come out day one and it, it adds, I think it was 10 million subs the first day, you know, they, they blow, they blow past all the subscriber targets by a very wide margin. And you know, if you look today, there's, there's the Fox component in here. So it makes it a little bit messy, but you kind of look at what I'd call their, their video business revenues, which includes linear, but also includes, you know, D 2 C and things like that. The revenue base has, has roughly doubled over the past five years. And I think that, you know, I think that speaks to the fact that this market has the ability to continue growing in my mind. And, and on the D2C side, it's pretty clear that there's going to be uh, pricing power and the ability to, you know, your, these services are not going to be priced at $6 for, for very long, <laughs> at least in their current, uh, their current format. Um, you know, the offset to that is Disney Plus, and maybe it's easier to speak about Disney D2C as a whole, the company operated with a strategy of trying to achieve global scale and achieving global scale as, as Netflix has shown to the extent it even has a chance of being successful is a strategic view that's going to take years to implement or, you know, to kind of get into place and it's expensive to get there. You need to make investments in content. Um, you know, the breadth of that content is a question that needs to be answered if you want to be global and have a very large base. You can't just live off of a couple of niche brands that only serve a certain percentage of the population. You need to have a, a more of an all you can eat model that touches these different buckets. So I think they, with Hulu and star, they, they kind of went down that road. Um, you know, there's always, there's obviously customer acquisition costs in terms of promotions and, and, and other expenses. There's, there's the tech costs in the back end of running these platforms. So, so long story short. They built up a sizable D2C business in a handful of years that significantly ex exceeded any reasonable numbers that I've seen from the street or elsewhere. Um, but there were very real costs to get from where they were in 2019 to where they are today. And I think part of the question and Iger coming back is certainly making this more relevant is, does the company want to keep going down this road? Do they think this is the right game to be playing or do they want to refocus the organization around, you know, a handful of kind of tentpole IP. Um, and 
that choice, in my view, will have a very significant impact on the the role of Hulu within the portfolio, potentially the role of ESPN in the portfolio, et cetera. So I, 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 I think I've said for a long time in, in writing and elsewhere that I think the biggest, one of the most important decisions here, if not the most important decision, is actually picking the strategy that makes sense for, for your company and your business and, and then playing that strategy out. And at Disney, certainly right now, it feels like they've, they take kind of a fork in the road in terms of what strategy they think is the right one. That makes sense. What, um, what are you looking for as a, as a sort of the next signal? So they, they are, they are embarking on this, this, uh, decision-making right now, whether to go, you know, down one door, number one, or door number two, in terms of content strategy and how all of the tech plays and the streaming business folds into that, um, where, is, where is your leaning right now? Well. It's funny. I think, I think Iger, he, well, for one, the 21 CF deal was 20, 21st century Fox deal was in some ways a play on being broader than what Disney is by definition. Right. And it gave them, it gave them a controlling interest in Hulu, which is more of a general entertainment platform than, than, you know, the core Disney platform is or Disney plus is. It gave them star and it gave them international scale, but again, it's more or more international scale, but again, it's more general entertainment than you know, truly Disney IP, obviously. Um, you know, he's also made certain comments about ESPN and ESPN plus and crossing that bridge over time. That would lead you to believe that he buys into, to that strategy, which I, I think is sound and I continue to believe is sound, but it requires significant investment it requires long-term time horizon to get from A to B. You know, the company has pushed in the U.S. They've, they've pushed this Disney bundle, which includes Disney Plus, Hulu, and ESPN Plus at a pretty significant discount to the cost of the standalone pricing for those streaming services. And they've seen fairly significant adoption. And, you know, we're getting to a point where if you decide that you no longer want to pursue that strategy, you have to find a way to uh, disentangle all of that. And that'll be a bit problematic. Um, you know, the value of something like Hulu is also an open question because I guess there's a difference between Hulu, the platform, the subscriber base, et cetera, and the content of Hulu to the extent that you, you control the production of that content. Um, I don't think anybody would be particularly interested in buying it without, you know, a long-term agreement for that content to stay on the platform. Otherwise, what are you buying? Um, so I just think there's, there's big decisions around these things that need to be made. You know, on the flip side, the company has taken significant price increases in the past six months or so across its USD to C services. And generally speaking, all the commentary and the numbers suggest there has not been meaningful churn. And I think, you know, we have, we have the Netflix example to look at here in terms of, of pricing power for these services. The one difference I'd, I'd note with Disney is that. Now, if you look at something like Nielsen data, their, their share of viewership is, is a lot lower than what someone like Netflix generates. And again, I think that not necessarily a bad thing for Disney plus to have a lower viewership share. If it fits with the, the strategic vision for that business, what type of content it's going to serve, it can have a higher quality, um, you know, event type of feel a la, you know, HBO max or at least traditional HBO. Um, but again, you're not, 
if that's if that's the strategy you're not you're not really competing in my mind at that point on on mind share and potentially scale in the same way that someone like Netflix is and that's greatly going to influence your ability to pay for content that's not in your kind of core IP it impacts the way you know leagues will think about the value that you provide to them you know think about a show like Drive to Survive on uh, Hulu or on Disney Plus or you know or another company Paramount Plus relative to Netflix like, that's obviously a much better value proposition for F1 to have that on Netflix than it would be on a much smaller streaming service kind of regardless of what the uh, the economics of that specific deal are. So there's just a lot to think about with all these things. And I think there have been and continue to be encouraging signs that they can, they can continue to pursue the strategy that they were pursuing over the past uh, two to three years. But they also need to, you know, show how that will work long-term. Um, it, it's funny. I think some of this is, some of this is where you're at today. Any reasonable definition of success on a, on a subscriber basis would almost have to assume that you would, you would face these financial impacts in terms of a P&L basis. Um, and the disconnect there, I don't think is, I don't think it's realistic to assume anything otherwise would have played out basically. <laughs> um, that's kind, of, that's kind of how I think about it. Yeah. Uh, I'll just mention two things that I talked about previously in the podcast. One is, I guess, one is there has been uh, some, some reports about, so the whole strategy, you know, one of the, one of the ways that people think about this is that you have, you have, you know, you, you sort of put everything together. You have Disney plus all the streaming assets, and then you have the content, and then you have the Disney park, the theme parks. And the way that it works is you get people in and the streaming business is a, is a way to acquire customers, you know, it's just, a, you know, perhaps you can think of it as a marketing expense and then you get them hooked on this value chain. And then, and then, you know, customers move on to ultimately paying that Disney tax at the, at the resort. And so that's, that's one way that people have mentioned it and talked about it in the podcast. And one of the complaints that I've heard in writing is that the actual services on the, on the, and the theme parks are, you know, not, not as, as good at what, what it used to be. So that's one of the things that I, that I read up on. The second thing is this whole idea of ad supported model. I think that's also kind of interesting to go down on, you know, Netflix is, is sort of going down that path. Hulu famously started that, um, that obviously has ramification for how the company positions itself. So maybe, maybe let's talk about that last piece, the, the ad supported model, because I think it fits to this overall conversation about the strategy, like the overarching grant strategy. Um, so how do you, how do you think about that? Yeah, I think, you know, real quick, just cause you mentioned the parks, I think it's an interesting side note to all of this, that Chain Vic who came out of the parks to run the business. As they're going through this period where, where D2C is generating significant losses and obviously, you know, materially impacting the co consolidated financials of the company, they started to clamp down on, uh, they started to clamp down on the parks business. I mean, in terms of monetization in a way that degraded the customer experience to some extent, at least. Um, and it's, it's just interesting to think as a, 
as a CEO of a public company, the decisions you might make in a given quarter or a year for the sake of, you know, the consolidated numbers or, you know, what the street expects, however you want to frame it relative to the decision-making that you would make if you were just thinking about it, of this is the asset that I'm going to be personally responsible for, for the next five, 10, 50 years. What's the most intelligent? It's, I just think it's a really, it's a really notable example of, of how public companies can make decisions that are uh, just not intelligent, basically over the long term, just pushing way too hard. And and, and Tiger's uh, Tiger's credit, some of those things were changed pretty immediately once he once he came back, and I, th I think that was really important because going to the parks is objectively very expensive. It has been objectively very expensive for a long time and you know whether or not you think that's reasonable depends on how you think about what the parks is um i would argue it's an incredibly unique experience and also that it needs to be an incredibly unique experience to your point on you know service quality or whatever else it may be in the parks to the extent they live up to you know the vision of what it can be or should be i think it's a business with real pricing power and the ability to generate you know, attractive returns. So, um, on the ad supported stuff, you know, I think it's, I think everybody is still to some extent figuring it out and thinking about how to navigate this. I mean, I, as a user, I see it a lot. Um, I've started noticing now when I was watching something on Paramount plus or Peacock recently, and you know, now when you pause between a movie, they have a pop-up with an ad for, you know, Arby's or oreos or whatever it may be I, I just think there's a lot of and it speaks to what i was saying about disney c2c efforts generally there's a lot of experimentation underway especially for the companies that haven't figured out how to be profitable in this space and who may also be struggling to to reach scale um there's a lot of experimentation underway to try to find out how to how to build a business here um so i think you'll see companies continue to try uh um, a bunch of different ideas, both in terms of monetization on the platform, but also how they, you know, segment out their content, what's exclusive, what's licensed elsewhere, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I think it'd be interesting to watch, but there's uh there's probably more change coming. Yeah. Great. I think that's a great way to end the segment here on the, on, on Disney. Let's move over to Roblox. Um, you wrote this article, Roblox, the path to profitability. So. To start us off with maybe just a quick description of what it is. Some, some, some people may not know what it is. So could you give us a quick description of what that is and then, and then, and talk about your, your thesis. Yeah, it's a good question. <laughs> the big question I asked in my first write up on Roblox, I kind of let in with, you know, Hey, I, I, I went on the platform and started, started playing on it or whatever you'd call it. And as someone who's in their thirties, I was, uh maybe confused isn't the right word, but it's, <laughs> it certainly wasn't the quality I was used to from playing FIFA or, you know, Call of Duty or something like that. It's certain something very different. Um, but then you look at kind of the KPIs and, you know, now pushing 60 million daily active users, you know, up six X from early 2018. And, you know, I just think that question, what is Roblox is a really important one. And so. As I wrote in my 
you know, first look at the company, I, I think this is kind of the core question. What is Roblox? And for someone like myself, I'm in my early thirties. It's very different from the, you know, what I think about when I think about gaming platforms like an Xbox or PlayStation and, you know, FIFA, Call of Duty, really high quality, like AAA games. And Roblox is something very different than that. Um, but I think when you look at the KPIs and look at the growth of this business over time, and you look at the engagement of their, their DAU, something on the order of two and a half hours a day for, you know, roughly 60 million people now, which is up six X from early 2018. Um, I think it speaks to, it speaks to this being something different than, than, you know, what I personally think about when I think about what gaming is and maybe it's, you know, it's the nature of the platform in terms of access and freemium, which, which makes it, you know, the, the hurdle to start playing is obviously very different than going out and buying a console for $300. Um, and there's also surely some of these social considerations and, and things that make it much more than just the gaming platform. So, you know, I'm, I'm still personally trying to think about how that, how that evolves over time. Um, the metrics on kind of aging up and users in their teens and even older is, is very encouraged. Um, you know, it's also a space with a ton of competition in various ways. And, um, I'm fascinated by the industry, but I'm still yet to kind of get my arms around who are, who are the clear winners here as we look out you know, 10, 20 years. Yeah. I think Roblox is interesting. Like you mentioned, what is it? It's a, it's a, it's a very profound question because like you said, it's, it's not like anything that I've seen before. I think what is interesting about it is the lack of high quality in terms of the aesthetic, the design. And then another thing that's interesting is it's all user generated content Roblox provides a platform. When you think about Roblox, you think it's, oh, it's one game. No, it's actually, it's like more games that you could play, you know, it's like thousands and thousands of games in there. Um, so I think that's interesting. The user generated content, like the platform play, it, it's almost akin to YouTube where, you know, YouTube provides this platform and creators can monetize on it. If you look at the line item on Roblox, they'll actually say developer compensation on the line item, um, in the piano set. So it's, it's, it's like, it's like paying out YouTube content creators. Yeah. Um, and here to your point before too, maybe I should add this as well. You know, I mentioned the kind of the deep dive, the first article I wrote about Roblox, the most recent one, as, as you said, was, you know, Roblox, the path to profitability. And I think it kind of speaks to what we we're talking about with streaming as well is, is, you know, as companies go through these periods where Mr. Market gives them different signals in terms of affirmation or kind of question marks. I think you do see it start to show up even on the margin in terms of, of how they think about, um, you know, their expense structure or, you know, what their focal point for the business is, how long it's going to take to achieve, you know, success on, on certain strategic priorities, et cetera. I think in the case of Roblox, you have an interesting example of a company that but for now, it's has been extremely high growth business. I think the past three years, bookings have grown at like a 60% CAGR. And, but it's also a company that has struggled to achieve consistent profitability probably isn't even the right wording because it hasn't been their primary focus. They've been investing in order to continue to sustain, um, you know, growth that 
is is kind of unmatched in in the industry. And I just think you go through a period like late twenty one and twenty two, and you see companies shift a little bit more to kind of demonstrate that they're more than just a product that is really liked by their customers. It's, they're building a real business. And Airbnb is probably the best example of this from the transition they went through, you know, in the early days of COVID where they, there was a real risk. The company was going uh, to not exist anymore. Basically they didn't raise capital because of how, how significantly they were impacted by the pandemic. But even on the back end of that, you see how they, they really focused on building a business as opposed to being a platform that adds value for, for users alone, find a way to do both. Obviously I think Roblox is starting to show that, that they have a path to, to get there as well. So maybe just for listeners context, can you walk, uh, walk me through how they actually make money? Sure. Well, the main thing that they do is they have forget the number off the top of my head. I want to say it's around 20%, um, um, payer penetration. So people who buy, they're called Robux, which is basically the on-platform currency and people buy those either through, you know, they buy them through mobile app stores or they buy, you know, prepaid slash gift cards at Walmart or wherever else. And they use that currency to, to purchase things, you know, uh, clothing and you know, other accessories on the platform and the developers are paid a cut of that, but Roblox also, also keeps a portion of that as kind of their compensation. So the business is, as I mentioned a minute ago, the relevant metric is, is bookings, which is basically just a variation of revenues with, with an adjustment for the timing of when, when those dollars basically, um, are recorded for a gap basis in terms of revenues. Um. But yeah, so, so Roblox has increased their bookings, as I mentioned a minute ago, at roughly a 60% CAGR. Um, I think if I'm not mistaken, the number for last year was 2.8 billion. I think that's right. See, I'll show the screen here. Man. I have it somewhere. I'll just flash. Yeah, yeah. 2.9 billion in Q4 was the, the trailing 12 month number. So this is a becoming a fairly sizable business and they have, they have certain expenses like developer fees that, um, will, will continue to be a prominent part of the business. And, you know, but there's other, there's other line items like R and D or G and S G and A that, you know, the idea would be over time, they can, they can have operating leverage on those expenses as they continue to grow and run the platform more efficiently. And I think, you know, if you look at their results in the in 2020, which was obviously a very unique period of time, given the tailwinds that, that COVID provided to them. Um, I think you can see how, how the expense structure can be, can be, uh, can evolve as they, as they continue to, to grow, but also become more efficient. Mm -hmm. Great. What, um, to be clear, I'm not on the stock just in case anybody, because I, because I praised it. I, I own the one, I own Disney, which I talked about previously, which I did not praise nearly as much. So that, that shows you how I think about these things. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, it is pretty astounding the the level of growth that these guys were able to achieve. It's, you know, I, I'll just anecdotally say some, you know, some of you who are, who are listening, you know, may have kids in you know, seven, you know, seven through, I don't know, like 12 years old. But in my previous company, I worked with a lot of um, parents who have 
uh, kids in that age range and that's all they wanted roblox like robux give me a robux for christmas my birthday like you know everyone because everyone's on it you know, people are playing roblox with each other so that you know as, as most of you know like fomo when you're that young is really strong right you want to be with your friends at all times and if people are your friends are on roblox you all you also want to be on roblox and and the the desire the desire to have all kind of skin like the is is very strong um so i i think i i read somewhere that the amount of sale like clothing the the skin sale done on roblox matches one of the biggest retailers of clothing like just like actual clothes so you, you can you can kind of see the volume um there yeah i first learned about it from my from my good buddy who's also an investor francisco Oliveira, and he has kids and he tells me about how they use it and and then i went on a, a trip with some family and i saw my cousin who at the time was probably 10 or 11. i saw him using roblox and kind of to what i was saying earlier about you know my view of what a gaming platform is relative to what this is to realize it it was something different that it wasn't just turn it on and go in a game and start playing. There's something different happening here that I'm too old to understand, but I'm trying to, I'm trying to at least <laughs> vicariously figure out what, what all these young kids are doing. Yeah. Great. Uh, so that was good, good, uh, great discussion, um, on Roblox. So that's it guys. So Disney Roblox, there you have it. Uh, interesting takes. If you guys want to learn more about Alex's work, definitely check out his website. I'll leave that in the show. That's the science of hitting.com. Awesome. Alex, great to have you. Thank you for having me. I enjoyed it. Yeah. Awesome. All right, guys. Thanks for listening. I'll check you guys, uh, in the next episode. Thanks. Mm -hmm.